Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That was a rhyme that I would say as a child, and maybe many of you have heard it before, or maybe you haven't, but it was a common chant in the playground where I grew up. It was a way of telling ourselves that words, they wouldn't impact us. Essentially, you could try to hurt me physically, but your words, they can't hurt me. Well, many of you and probably all of you know that's simply not true. Words can hurt. Maybe as a child, you were mocked. I know I was. Or maybe you were the bully as a kid, knowing that your words would hurt the kids you were taunting. Maybe you've seen your child come home crying after being teased at school. But even then, we know that it doesn't just apply to children. Even as adults, we say words to one another that hurt. Words are powerful. Robert Fulgham, an American author, reworded this chant, and he says, Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will break our hearts. See, here he captures the reality that James knows and is going to address to us this morning is that words are powerful, and we need to use them well. Knowing that puts a greater emphasis on our main point this Sunday, which is that we should speak in the wisdom that comes from Christ. We are going to look at the flesh that speaks, the wisdom that shows, and finally the faith that speaks. If words can really impact others and ourselves, we should work to make sure that they are soaked in the wisdom of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, the word of life that gives life to our souls. I ask, Lord, this morning that you would use this sermon for your glory. Transform us by the power of your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll begin at the start of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. James starts this section with a warning that not many should become teachers. Now, of course, James is not talking about a teacher in general. You are free to go teach math or physics or science. He is speaking in the context of the church, being a teacher of the word of God. Now, why should not many become teachers? Well, he tells us that we will receive a stricter judgment. James throws himself in there acknowledging that he is a teacher. So he's not saying no one should be a teacher, but not many, because the judgment is stricter. The standards are higher. There is a greater responsibility for the person who is teaching. Hebrews 13, verse 17, affirms this when it tells us that leaders are going to give an account for the souls in their care. And likewise, teachers will have to give an account for every word they said and all the people that they led. But James doesn't stop there because just having a high standard doesn't mean you shouldn't do something. But he warns and says, we all stumble 
in many ways or in various ways. This is a known fact throughout Scripture. The biblical authors agree with this. And even 1 John 1, which we read this morning, tells us that anyone who says he has no sin is a liar. We all sin. We all stumble in various ways. And James narrows down here to speech. Why? It's quite simple. He's speaking to teachers. And, well, teachers speak. And so they need to be more aware of the fact that even in words we can stumble. But he goes to paint this picture of how severe our words are to the point where he says that if anyone doesn't stumble in what they say, they're perfect. That's what that word mature means. It means perfect or complete, lacking nothing. And so he's saying if, if you don't stumble in your words, you've got nothing else to work on. You're able to control your whole body also. Not that um, it's, it's tied necessarily, but it's that stumbling in our words is so much easier than stumbling in our bodies, according to James's logic here. So it's a comparison. So James doesn't just expect you to believe him without proving himself. So he is going to give us a series of images and examples that show you why it's so common for people to stumble. And he's going to show us now how the flesh speaks. Let's go on to verse 3. We're going to read 3 through the beginning of 5. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, too, the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. We can see pretty easily what the image is. A small bit in the mouth of a large horse. A small rudder directing a very large ship. These things that seem to be insignificant. They seem to be so tiny, and maybe we could even do without them. James is showing us, no, they actually carry the power in driving these creatures and the ship. And he links it to the tongue. The tongue, likewise, is small, but very powerful. Now, we know this. We know that the words we say, the speech we have, are powerful, even when they're small. The phrase, I love you, we know that's a big deal when a guy tells his girlfriend, I love you, for the very first time. I know for me, I waited to say that phrase until the minute before I proposed to my wife, because I knew the weight of those words. Likewise, the phrase, I hate you, has power. Maybe as a parent, you've heard your child yell at you, I hate you, and it cuts to your heart. Why? Why? Because words carry weight. And so the tongue is small but powerful. Let's continue on with the end of verse 5 through verse 8. Consider how small, how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. 
It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. James has nothing good to say about the tongue. Let's start with his first example. He calls it a small fire, and, and here's no, he's not going off the, the idea of small to powerful, but it's not just small and powerful, but it's small and, and dangerous. A small fire sets an entire forest ablaze. So many wildfires around the world, we realize, are started by a, a cigarette that's lit or a small campfire that sets the entire forest ablaze. They're called wildfires because they can't be controlled. And then James says the tongue is a fire. He's not saying that is a good thing. He's saying that the tongue sets stuff on fire, specifically the course of life. Your entire life can be set on fire by the words you say. And he lets us know that, by the way, this isn't a good fire because it's set by hell itself. The second example he gives is taming all the animals in the world. Now, there are many dangerous and wild animals still today. Yet James is trying to show us that the tongue is the most dangerous and the most wild of them all. He does this by speaking in past tense. He says all the animals, the reptiles, the birds, the fish, they've all been tamed as though it's already happened, but the tongue can't be. What he's saying is there is a possibility that every animal could be tamed and we could be speaking in past tense and the tongue itself still not tamed. He calls it a restless evil. It's restless. It's not willing to be locked down. It has deadly poison. So anyone who tries will be killed. We see that the tongue is a dangerous evil. In verses 9 through 12, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, And with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. James is giving us a list of paradoxes, a list of impossibilities. He knows the answer to these questions are no. A spring of sweet water will never give out bitter water randomly. A fig tree will never produce olives. Yet our tongue has found a way to both bless God and curse his image bearers. To sing praises to our Lord as we have this morning 
and yet gossip at the person across the row from us. The tongue we see is double-minded. If a spring of water were to randomly give out fresh and salt water, we would never go to it. Why? Because we can't trust it. And likewise, the tongue is double-minded, and we can't trust it. So James has shown us the nature of how our flesh speaks. The tongue is small but powerful. It is a dangerous evil and is double-minded. This is why we stumble in what we say. This is why we should be slow to become teachers. So what does James suggest? Well, next he's going to show us how wisdom shows itself. Let's look at verses 13 through 18, starting with 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. You see, our wisdom is visible. It's seen in the works that we do. He starts off by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? Now that's tying back to the teacher idea. You see, it seems that people are thinking that they can become teachers. I'm wise enough, I'm understanding enough, and, and it's clear. We all want teachers who are wise and understanding. No one wants a foolish or an ignorant teacher. What James is saying here is that true wisdom, if you really are wise and really are understanding, it'll show. It'll show in your conduct, in your words, and in your actions. And, and obviously here he's speaking more about our words. Last week we spoke about actions. Now James here is talking about what true wisdom looks like. True wisdom shows itself with good conduct. But first, we're going to talk about false wisdom. What is false wisdom? Look at verses 14 and 16 with me. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. And now it seems like James is unpacking the situation there. It seems like some people are desiring to be teachers out of envy and selfish ambition. Maybe they saw someone else as a teacher and said, I can do better than that. I can do what they're doing. There's bitter envy there saying, that person's not good enough. I'm better. And then there's the selfish ambition aspect where they're saying, I want to prop myself up. I want to be a teacher so people can see how amazing I am, so they can see how wise I am. And James is saying, this isn't wisdom. That's self-seeking. It's self-exaltation. And he tells us what this wisdom is. It's earthly, unspiritual, and he goes as far as to call it demonic. He gets quite extreme, and that's for us, brothers and sisters, to realize that we should not make light of these things. We should not take lightly the idea that selfish ambition and bitter envy live in our hearts. 
he shows us the end of these things, it leads to disorder and every evil practice. Chaos. Chaos is the result of worldly wisdom. But take heart. There is another type of wisdom, and it comes from above. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This harkens back to James 1, where James first tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God and he will provide it. This is the wisdom he's talking about, wisdom from above, not wisdom of the world. This is the wisdom that shows itself in good conduct, as he just showed us in verse 13. And I'm going to show you how this wisdom and its characteristics stand opposed to the wisdom of the world and the nature of the tongue. See, this wisdom is pure. It's undefiled. It doesn't stain the body like the tongue does, and neither is it stained by the world. This wisdom loves peace. It doesn't cause disorder. It doesn't set on fire the course of life. This wisdom from above is gentle, not harsh. This wisdom is compliant, which is another way to say it's open to reason. It's willing to submit. It's not a restless evil that refuses to be tamed. The wisdom that comes from above is full of mercy and good fruits, not full of bitter envy. This wisdom is unwavering. It's steadfast, not double-minded like our tongue. And this wisdom is without pretense, or it's sincere or true. It doesn't boast or deny what is true. You see, brothers and sisters, the wisdom from above stands in direct opposition to the wisdom of the world. And the reality is that true wisdom is life-giving. That's what verse 18 is talking about. The fruit of righteousness results from those who cultivate peace. That word cultivate brings to mind like cultivating a garden. You till the soil, you plant a seed, you water it, you pull the weeds that grow up, you prune the branches. It takes work to cultivate a garden. And likewise, peace takes work. It's not just an internal peace either, like, oh, I just feel at peace inside. No, that word cultivate has the same English root as the word culture. And so it is about a people of peace. It is peace with others and peace for others. You see, the natural tongue and the wisdom of the world, they divide. But the wisdom that comes from above creates peace, and it creates people of peace. Now, the greatest example of that on this earth is the church. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
are created for peace with one another and for peace with the world. So in the community of Christians, we ought to be the ones cultivating peace with one another. So where does this leave us? On our own, we can't speak words of life. It's impossible. Our tongues, left to their own devices, only cause destruction. Let's remember back to verse 2, where James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature or perfect, able also to control the whole body. Well, we, we know of only one person in all of human history who was perfect, and that was Jesus. We know that in his earthly life, he never sinned, which includes with his tongue. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus always knew what to say and when and how to say it. With many, he was gentle and kind. And yet, with others, he was stern and confrontational as they needed it. Sometimes, he would use a parable to make people think. And other times, he would use a metaphor to help them understand. Sometimes Jesus would respond to a question with a question, and he always knew when to stay silent. Jesus never spoke a word out of place, and he never left a necessary word unsaid. Now, according to the logic that James gives, if Jesus was able to control his tongue, which he was, then he was also able to control his whole body, which we know he was. He lived a holy and blameless life. He controlled his body to the point of laying it down, of giving it up. He allowed himself to be killed for our behalf. But he did not stay dead. We know he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit to the earth to convict of sin and to bring life to all who believe in him. Now, I'm not just sharing this because Jesus is the answer, but Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, verse 34, that the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't have a speech problem. We have a heart problem. Our heart is wicked, and so our tongue is wicked. But then, then we remember the promise from Ezekiel 36 that our sister Reese read this morning, that God promises to give his people a new heart. He promises to put his spirit in them so that they would obey. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' death and resurrection makes this possible. If you are in Christ, you have been given his spirit, and the spirit of God dwells in you and makes you alive. Our hearts have been replaced with good hearts, and now we can speak in the wisdom that comes from Christ. But before we get there, I want to talk to the people in the room 
who haven't trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, who are not children of God, who do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Friends, I have bad news for you. You can't expect to live a good life apart from Christ. You can't control your tongue apart from him. The only thing that will result is evil practice and disorder. But there is good news too, that Jesus says that anyone who comes to him, anyone who believes in him, will have eternal life. You have that choice right now. You can trust in Christ, believe in his work to save you. And if you do that, you too will receive the Holy Spirit. You will have a new heart that not only can obey God, but does so with joy. So come to Jesus. He won't turn you away. Now to those of us who are in Christ, who do have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, we must speak in the wisdom that comes from Christ. Now this can look like many different things, but I want you to imagine with me what it would look like for us, for City Bible Church, to have faith that speaks in this way. Well, for one, we would speak gospel truth to others. Now, this looks like proclaiming the gospel to the lost in our lives, declaring to them the hope that we have and that they could have in Christ. But this also looks like speaking the gospel truth to one another. When one of us is facing difficulty or hardship, whether sickness, relationship struggles, or something else, we don't just give cliches of nice words, it'll be good, God bless you. But instead, we share truths from the gospel. We remind our brothers and sisters of what the Bible says. So to our brothers and sisters who are dealing with anxiety, we remind them that they can take their anxiety to the Lord, and he will give them peace that surpasses all understanding. To those who are suffering, we can tell them to take heart and rejoice because they know that their suffering is producing an eternal weight of glory beyond all understanding. If we were to be a people who speak in the wisdom that comes from Christ, we would use our words to build up and encourage others. With one another, this might look like sharing with each other what you see Christ doing in someone's life. You acknowledge the way that they are growing in maturity in Christ as an encouragement to keep going. With the outside world, you would encourage people in their daily lives and work, letting them know that you see them and acknowledge what they are doing and what is good. And my wife, Anna, is great at this, and she's going to hate that I share this example, but she's downstairs. So she is really, really good at encouraging people where they are. I remember a specific example. We were at a restaurant in Houston, and the server behind the counter, Anna, told her, has anyone ever told you that you're really good at your job? And the server started crying. 
No one had said this. No one had acknowledged this to her. And this isn't a fake flattery. Don't just go tell the server at the restaurant today that that happened. But it's, it's being willing to notice things that are worth encouraging and then encouraging it. So look and then speak from the wisdom that comes from Christ. We would use our words to pray for one another and not just silently at home, although when you do that, I encourage you to text someone and tell them you're praying for them as an encouragement, but pray out loud for people right away. After church today, if you're having a conversation with someone and they share something hard going on in their life, ask them, can I pray for you? And then do it right then and there. Our words have power. I know we have some friends in the States that have four little boys from ages two to eight. And every now and then, they'll send us a voice note of the little boys praying for us. And it's just the cutest thing. And it's such an encouragement to me and Anna to just keep going. If we speak in the wisdom that comes from Christ, we would practice gratefulness with our words rather than complaining. When circumstances don't go our way, we would be quick to thank God for the things he has given us, and even more so thank him for his presence in our life in the midst of hardship. If we spoke in the wisdom that comes from Christ, we would speak when we would rather be silent. There are many difficult conversations that we would rather not have. But in gospel-centered life, we need to speak to one another the truth. But we must do so in love. Now, another way that this looks of speaking when you don't want to is, is more of a sinful situation where I can be a witness that for myself, when I get angry or upset... I don't tend to lash out or yell or scream. I tend to close up and I give the silent treatment. That's sinful as well, brothers and sisters. That's speech that hurts by not being said. So for myself, and if any of you are like me, we need to speak in those moments. Speak truth and speak love, even when we don't want to. And now for others of us, it might look the opposite. We need to learn when to not speak. Eyes and be silent. Brothers and sisters, we have seen the flesh that speaks and leads to destruction. And we have seen faith that speaks and leads to life and peace. The difference is whether we are in Christ and whether we are living out of the wisdom that Christ gives us. So choose today to speak in the wisdom that comes in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your spirit if we believe in you, that you have given us the ability and the opportunity 
to speak in wisdom. O Lord, we ask for grace that we would do so in grace for one another when we don't. Allow us to know you more today in the power of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.